Davis, if you want to really make a difference, don't work for me. Don't work for another nonprofit. You should go start something. And hopefully down the road, you'll have success and uh, the experience that allow you to go do something much bigger than if you just worked for me. And it turns out it was really, really great advice. That's so interesting. It's almost like a no that turned into the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. I have chosen an entrepreneurial path. It wasn't necessarily something really thought about. But when he said it, it made sense to me. It clicked. The fact that he thought I'd be a good entrepreneur, like gave me the confidence to try something. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode, don't be the only keeper of the flame. My guest today, Davis Smith, had built multiple businesses before coming to a moment of crisis, and then an epiphany. A lot of conflict with his longtime co-founder, who'd been like a brother, led Davis to a period of depression and rethinking his life. He realized that if he was going to start another business, he'd need to leave everything behind. He also realized the new business he'd start would need something bigger to motivate it, a true social mission. He'd begin with strong core values and start as a public benefit corporation and then build a product to sell. (laughs) What he built was Cotopaxi. Today, the company is known as a fast-growing outdoor gear retailer selling bright-colored jackets and backpacks. It has more than 300 employees and made revenue of more than $100 million last year. The company also gives at least 1% of its revenue to nonprofits that help communities experiencing poverty. In this episode, Davis and I not only talk about his emotional journey to building the company he's known for, but another emotional decision that he's recently made to step back for a few years. But before Davis had even sold one single Technicolor backpack, he was a kid in a big family that influenced him deeply. I know a lot of entrepreneurs talk about when they were a kid, you know, selling cookies or doing all these little entrepreneurial things. Honestly, I look back and I don't have those moments, but I do see traits, personality traits that I have that have served me well as an entrepreneur that I had back then, for sure. What do you think some of those are? A few things. Like, I've always kind of obsessed over certain things. And so if I find something that I'm really passionate about, I'll kind of become very obsessed with that thing and kind of dive in and be just like hyper-focused on that thing for a while. And in maybe ways that aren't normal even. So, you know, those are things that as an entrepreneur, they serve you well. You like, you have some idea and you can like just, you can go really deep. You obsess over it. It consumes all your thoughts. You can't sleep at night until you like figure this thing out. And so... I saw some of those things, you know, as I look back in my childhood. I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot, and uh, we had a large family, eight kids. I'm the second of eight kids. Wow. Yeah, so big family. And, um, you know, my family moved to the United States when I was a teenager. And I knew that uh, with a large family, if I, you know, wanted to go to college, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They call us Mormons. I wanted to be a missionary when I was 19. And so to do that, I had to save money. From the time I was a young kid, I was always saving money. Uh, When I was a teenager in the summers, I'd work 60 to 80 hours. You know, from the time school got out to the time school started again in the summer, I was working a couple jobs, saving as much money as I could. So just learning to work hard, to be frugal, and to like learn how to save, those things really served me well also as an entrepreneur, where you have to be really scrappy and 
a lot of times put in longer hours. And so, yeah, like some of those experiences as a kid definitely helped prepare me for this career that I ended up taking. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I like that you mentioned that that sort of scrappiness and resourcefulness that comes from not having a lot or uh, as a kid or especially having to share what you do have with siblings. Um, I feel like that can really help one not take things for granted once you do make something work for yourself too, like that making a summer job really pay off. So what was your role amongst your siblings? Like what would they say about you from your childhood? Well, I was the second. So, you know, my oldest brother uh, was just a little bit older than me. He's a lot, I mean, he's just brilliant. So a lot smarter than I am. And um, so I, I think I kind of played the role of uh, maybe more of like a a backup quarterback, <laughs> you know, mm. <laughs> not that talented, not that good, but, um, you know, had a great person to look up to and um, kind of follow a lot of, you know, his past and footsteps. He did an MBA at the University of Chicago. And I kind of thought, oh, I want, I should do an MBA as well. Like he was just some, you know, someone that I always looked up to. Um, at the same time, like I, certainly a leader, like I, I love organizing things. I love organizing trips. Uh, you know, this last year I organized a trip with my dad and my brothers and my brothers-in-law. We all, we went and survived for a week on these little islands. Uh, we took, rented two tiny little boats, uh, sailboats, more like rowboats with sails. I mean, like no engine or anything and just, just big enough to put your gear in. And then we would sail island to island and we speared fish and ate coconuts to survive for a week and brought no food. So like that's, you know, I love organizing and bringing things together and people together. That would definitely be kind of a role I've played in my family. I love it. All right. So tell me about your first steps into business. Did you uh, go to college and assume you'd be um, getting into business like your older brother? One of the paths I thought I might take was in the nonprofit world. Um, having grown up in Latin America, I'd moved there when I was four years old. Um, for my dad's job. Um, I loved Latin America. Um, you know, when I was in college, I'd, I'd just gotten back from a two-year mission in Bolivia. And so uh, I'd spent all my childhood in Latin America, you know, a couple really important years in my old, early adulthood. And I'd seen poverty my entire life that was just devastating. And these people were brilliant and hardworking and ambitious, and they had no chance of getting out of poverty, of breaking this cycle simply because of where they were born. And for me, that was a real motivation. From the time I was a kid, I knew that's what I wanted to spend my life on, was finding a way to help people. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I, I did this great internship um, when I was an undergrad. It was an unpaid internship working for a nonprofit in Peru, and I loved it. It was so special to be able to go spend time in these communities, and it was culturally very similar to Bolivia, where I'd just been as a missionary for a couple of years, and I just fell in love with the people and this place. and with that work. And I came back to college and I met a man who was a, an adjunct professor at the university. And he was in his 60s, early 60s. He'd been a successful entrepreneur, had made quite a bit of money. Um, and I was just so inspired by this man, not because of his entrepreneurial background, but because after he'd sold his business, he moved to the Philippines with his wife and they started a school to teach entrepreneurship to people living in poverty. And people would spend two months in residence in the school that they had. And they would, by the time they graduated, they had a small business to go run and operate. And I wanted to work for this man. I, you know, I, he was, he became like an idol for me, this hero. And I tried to convince him to let me go work for him and to help him expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America. And he instead convinced me that I should become an entrepreneur. He's like, Davis, if you want to really make a difference, don't work for me. Don't work for another nonprofit. You should go start something. And Hopefully down the road, you'll have success and uh, the experience that allow you to go do something much bigger than if you just worked for me. And 
it turns out it was really, really great advice. That's so interesting. It's almost like a no that turned into the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have chosen an entrepreneurial path. It wasn't necessarily something I'd ever really, really thought about. But when he said it, it made sense to me. It clicked. And I, the fact that he thought I'd be a good entrepreneur like gave me the confidence to try something. And so just a few months later, I started my first business and uh, you know, kind of began that path. Yeah. And what was your first business? You know, it was a, a very random business, uh, a business called PoolTables.com. And it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, my cousin and I started together and uh, we were dabbling in a bunch of different ideas. And I had this idea. So you decide to sell something just really huge and heavy over the internet. Exactly. Free shipping. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, in 2004. So the internet was relatively new, uh, e-commerce, you know, so I, I did a bunch of Google searches and found a, a factory in China that, that made pool tables. And we started selling them on eBay. And that was kind of our start. And we ended up doing a, a million dollars in sales our first year. So it was the business. It, it worked. And um, it wasn't without some real challenges. I mean, we there were many moments where we almost uh, went bankrupt or almost lost everything and, you know, just you know, we never raised venture capital. It was bootstrapped. Mm. You know, my parents and my my in-laws ended up mortgaging their homes to help me finance the business. It was definitely, you know, risky, wow. a little scary. Um, but you made it work. Yeah. Tell me two things really quickly. How much does a pool table cost? And did anyone ever try to return one? Yeah. So the pool tables on average uh, at the time cost, you know, around $2,000, you know, once everything was said and done, the, in, in the installation, the you know, accessories and stuff. Now it's a bit more because of inflation. But Yes, people return pool tables. And, uh, you know, fortunately, it was not very often. Where did you go from there after selling pool tables online? Yeah, so uh, my cousin and I, when we were in this business, we did it for about five years when we decided um, we didn't want to be the pool table guys forever. And we'd always kind of thought about business school and uh, we decided, you know, let's go to business school. And, you know, entrepreneurial friends, they thought we were crazy because you usually are supposed to drop out of school to go start a business, not the other way around. But we felt so strongly that, you know, to go chart the path we wanted to, we should go to school. And so my cousin ended up going to Harvard Business School. Uh, I went to the Wharton School. And, you know, during school, we ended up selling the pool table business. And uh, we started charting this new path of like, hey, what business could we do together again? And so we ended up starting a business down in Brazil and uh, an e-commerce business. And so after business school, we moved down there and, and started business. And it was uh, our first experience having a venture-backed business. And what did that turn into? So uh, lots of ups and downs. Um, you know, we raised uh, about $4.3 million when we were in business school for this business. And wow. um, it was mind-blowing. I mean, we'd, we'd really grounded out with that first business and it was so stressful. And all of a sudden, like we this other business, it was like, we just had this fun idea, put together a great PowerPoint presentation. We had a, you know, two founders that had done something before it had some success. And we found that people would give us money. And it was like, this is amazing. And um, so we moved down to Brazil, and we started building a team and the, the, the business grew very quickly from four employees to 300 employees over about 18 months. It was Brazil's startup of the year in 2012. Wow. And what were you selling? Baby products. Ah, oh, right. Yeah. So the website was baby.com.br. Yeah. And, um, you know, we sold strollers and car seats and baby clothes. And, you know, in some ways it was this amazing success story. But at the same time, there were some major challenges. And, 
Brazil was an incredibly difficult place to do business. Lots of bureaucracy, an expectation of paying bribes everywhere. And it was something that we just weren't willing to do. And so it was a challenging place. And um, frankly, you know, we made some mistakes as, an, as entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, we ended up raising quite a bit of venture capital as we were getting this business to scale. And we started scaling very, very quickly, probably faster than we should have. Um, the economics of the business were not as good as they should have been. Because as soon as, you know, Brazil, I ended up, maybe I'll, I'll put a pause on that part of the story for a second and just say my, my cousin and I had worked together for 10 years. And we were like brothers. I mean, we built homes on the same street previously. We vacationed together. Um, we were part of each other's lives every single day. But during that time, we ended up having um, a lot of conflict. And mm. it ended up, yeah. you know, our, our relationship fell apart. And it, uh, it's t- you know, 10 years later, it's still one of the saddest things in my life. And I ended up deciding that I, I was ready to leave and to go do something different. And I just felt so, honestly, I was... I was depressed. I mean, I was, it was so hard. It was just a difficult thing to lose such an important friendship for me. And um, over something that just didn't even matter, which was like a business and money, like those things just seemed not that important to me. And, and when I left, um, and I left at the end of, uh, of 2013, and um, Brazil around that same time started entering a, a pretty deep recession and uh, mm. ended up being very damaging to the business. And my cousin spent quite a few years still there with the business, but, you know, the business ended up failing and a real disappointment for everyone involved. And um, so, yeah, that that's kind of the second chapter of the entrepreneurial. Yeah. Well, obviously you, you had the crisis of the business caused a crisis in the relationship, but what was going on with the fast growth at that time? I mean, I think we've all learned a lot about how that super fast growth and especially venture-fueled, venture-funded fast growth can cause businesses kind of to get into a state of crisis. Um, what, did, what did you take away from that? And, and what did you learn from that that others you would like others to know? Yeah. I, I mean, there's a few big lessons that I learned there. Um, number one, are really, uh, you know, uh, some lessons around co-founders and relationships you know, there's two ways to really approach a co-founder relationship. You can either do what my cousin and I did a couple times, which is say, hey, we're going to work together. Let's go find a business to do. And then you end up, you know, we ended up, you know, splitting the business 50-50. And there was always a conflict, a bit of a conflict around like, well, who's in charge? And like, who's the leader? Who's the CEO? Like, who's going to make the final decisions? And who's who's going to set the vision for the business? And the other way to do it is the way that I've done my current business, which I'm sure we'll get into in a second. But it's, you know, I had the idea. And um, over a period of time, I started building a, a little team to help me go build and, and launch this business. And as I did that, I was looking for people that could solve specific problems. I knew what the business was. I needed people that had certain skill sets and could and, and could round out some of the weaknesses that I had. And and in doing that, I wasn't giving away half the business to one person. Like I, I could figure out the right amount of, of equity to give the right, you know, the person and the, based on the skills they were bringing. And frankly, I found a much better way to build a t- an early team. You know, the second big lesson for me with that business was you cannot scale until you've built efficiency into the business. So there's this early stage where you're really kind of testing the market and testing the idea and seeing if there's product market fit. And then you kind of see, hey, we're getting it. Like there is product market fit. We're solving a problem. And what we did, the mistake that we made is once we saw that product market fit, it was like scale. Like we've got all this capital that we've been given. People are excited about what we're doing. Hit the gas, like hire a bunch of people 
expand sales and growth. And what we realized was like, and what I've realized in doing this, this current business that I'm doing is like, there's a step in between, which is before you go scale, take the time to go build a strong foundation and to build efficiencies in the business where when you go scale, you're not scaling losses, you know, you're scaling, you know, profitable growth. And so um, it was a, you know, definitely a painful lesson to learn. And so you stepped away and you moved on. What happened next? So I, I decided that, um, you know, I was in Brazil and uh, laying in bed, just honestly in this funk and feeling discouraged, feeling disappointed in um, this relationship that was failing. At the time, the business was still apparently doing fine. We just raised a large amount of, of capital, but I was feeling very discouraged. And also I'd set a New Year's resolution in 2013 that I wanted to change somebody's life. And um, I had a little post-it note on my mirror in the bathroom and it was something I was thinking about every day and, you know, thinking about this promise I'd made myself earlier in my life about wanting to use my life to help others and the challenge that this mentor of mine had given me to find a way to help others through entrepreneurship. And I just hadn't done that. I didn't, I didn't know how to marry, you know, doing business and doing good at the same time. But as I was, as I was laying in bed, I started having some ideas come to my mind and I got out of bed and I sat on the couch and I wrote these ideas down as they were coming to me. And I ended up spending the entire night, the entire next day, and the entire following night on this couch. And I have, you know, I had what what I would call like really like a spiritual experience for me. And during those 36 hours, I, I came up with this idea of building a business that could be a force for good, that could, I named the business Cotopaxi after a volcano in Ecuador where I had lived as a kid and where I loved going camping and backpacking with my dad and with the scouts and you know, decided to move back to the U.S. to build a, a purpose-driven business that could fight poverty. And I told my board and my partner that I was leaving, and it was a really hard, a really hard moment. And I was terrified, to be honest, like a lot of fear. Uh, I was leaving everything behind, starting all over again. Everything I had was tied up in that other business that I was leaving behind. And I worried about, you know, if I failed, what would people think of me? You know, I you know, people thought of me as an entrepreneur, but I'd always done it with my cousin. So what if I failed and everyone just thought, ah, Davis was just riding his coattails and, you know, maybe he isn't a great entrepreneur after all, like all these irrational fears that I had, but I was so driven by the purpose and the mission that I I couldn't let it go. I couldn't not do it. And so um, it was a, a, a scary, but also just a super inspiring experience for me. And did you have a product in mind when you when you had, when you decided I'm going to quit, I'm going to move back to the United States? Did you know what you would be making? In those 36 hours, like it's a, it's remarkable. I took a detailed journal during that period. It is remarkable how similar Cotopaxi is to what I outlined. Uh, everything from the product huh. we would sell to our, our our slogan, Gear for Good, came up with in that 36 hours. Our, you know, selling backpacks, jackets, the llama in our logo. Like it all kind of came together in those those first hours of wow. Yeah, what I wanted to build. So you had 36 hours of sort of mind meld with this future idea of your business. And then how long did it take you to actually get that off the ground? Yeah. So um, I ended up spending six months in Brazil and uh, where they asked me to transition out of the business over the Mm -hmm. months and so to not just leave abruptly. And um, I really wanted to be careful that I wasn't spending too much time on this new business during that time. But I let them know, I said, hey, I, I have another business that I'm going to start to work on. I'm going to be careful about how I do it. But um, in the nights and the weekends, I, I was spending time on this new idea. And, you know, not a whole lot of progress was made because I wasn't living in the United States. I 
couldn't really build a team, uh, you know, very well being abroad. But I started putting together a few of the pieces, a few of the people, you know, I met some people on LinkedIn that I found that were amazing outdoor gear designers, award-winning uh, apparel or gear designers. And we all started working on things. And then I moved back to the U.S. And the day I moved back to the U.S., I started fundraising. I just dove headfirst and built this great little team. There were six of us and we we just meet in each other's apartments and um, just crank all night on on ideas and on getting this this thing off the ground. And so I moved back the day after Thanksgiving of 2013, and then we launched the business in April of 2014. So that kind of gives you a sense for the timeline. Yeah, pretty quick. Yeah, very quick. We launched with five backpacks. Super, super simple. We needed to just check and see if we, I mean, I had this big vision of all these other products I wanted to make, but we started as simple as we could. Yeah, that's great. And your backpacks have become pretty iconic. They are bright colored, all different arrays of colors, and they're not sort of made to blend in, right? Um, when I think, okay, it's 2014, gear for good, I think, isn't that space, I mean, it's not necessarily crowded or packed, but it's got some iconic brands that already sort of exist in it. Did you have any concern there? Oh, yeah. You know, when I was fundraising, that first seed round that I raised, I pitched over 100 different investors, angel wow. investors, VCs, impact investors, and I got rejected a lot. And, and what was the reason that you kept hearing? I mean, a few things. Number one, I was launching as a benefit corporation. So I was committing to giving away money before we ever made money. So that was a that was an element of like, hey, why, you know, why are you doing this today? Why, why don't you go build the business? And then if you want to give away money later when it's successful, that that makes a lot more sense. You know, investors were nervous about giving us money that we would be giving away. Mm -hmm. You know, the second thing was it's a very crowded space. I mean, I got told many, many times, like, you know, there's so many outdoor brands that are already purpose driven. Like, I don't think you need to exist. Like, I, you know, there, there was a lot of question around whether there was actually a, a way to break into the space that has already so many massive, huge brands that have been around for decades, um, you know, 40, 50, 70 years. And how are we going to break into that space? And what was your vision for breaking in and for being different? So there was a few things that I, I think were really going to set us apart. Number one, uh, we we're going to have a humanitarian mission tied deeply into every aspect of our business and brand. And um, it wasn't going to be an afterthought. It wasn't going to be on, on the periphery of the brand. It was the very heart of who we were. Um, the second thing is I wanted to create experiences that allowed people to connect with the brand, not just sell them product. And so when we launched the brand, the day that we turned on our website, we also had this event we called the Questable, which was this 24-hour adventure race and people could form teams. We gave them hundreds of challenges to choose from, and they got points based on the challenge they did. Maybe if they they went on a hike, or if they caught a fish, or if they camped in their backyard, like, or if they built a fire and made s'mores on it. And so, like, there was all these different challenges, some more challenging than others. But the idea was like we wanted to welcome more people into the outdoor industry, not just the hardcore top of the mountain kind of outdoorsmen. We wanted to have more diversity, more women, you know, more people that maybe had felt excluded from the outdoor industry, and so. This event did that. And the way we let people know about it was we actually bought two llamas on the online classifieds and we took those llamas around college campuses and we told people about this event that was going to be coming up and people gathered around the llamas and took selfies and wanted to know that why they were on campus. And uh, we would we did that as much as we could until the campus security would kick us off campus with the llamas and <laughs> Scrappily trying to build awareness around what we were doing. And we ended up having about 5,000 people show up to that first kickoff event. And we had 30,000 wow. media posts of people using our backpacks, 
um, spending time in the outdoors, giving service in the community for part of this 24-hour event. And that's that's how we launched the brand. Yeah. So how, how instrumental was social media to that launch? Not many brands were really harnessing its power at that point. I mean, a, a little bit for sure, but um, it sounds like that was sort of key to your vision of spreading the word. It was huge. It was, it was a game changer for us. I mean, we people were discovering the brand not because we were paying Facebook or Google for ads. Right. They were discovering the brand because we had these evangelists that were experiencing the brand values and that wanted to tell other people about it and were sharing their experiences. And with the Questival, the way we did those early events was to get the points, you had to post on social media and tag us so we could follow how many points your team got. So they were posting a lot. I mean, probably to the point of annoying for their friends, you know, those first few events that we did. But that's how we, you know, it's what we needed to do to get started. And we ended up holding about 100 of those Questivals across the country um, in different cities. And it was a, it was a very important part of our early, early days as a brand. Wow. Did you, did you take the llamas to a hundred different events? No, we didn't, we didn't take the llamas everywhere, but we bought an old horse trailer, uh, and we, you know, we converted it into our llama trailer and we, we would drive them around to, you know, cities that were not too far away from us. And then cities <laughs> where we'd go rent, you know, some local llamas and yeah, the llamas are definitely, they're fun, quirky animal. And um, they definitely were are still a part of our part of our brand. That's great. Yes, yeah, as, as someone who has been spit on by a llama, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's so funny. They are, they're, yeah, they're very they're very unique. Uh, you know, the first time I saw llamas was in the wild, um, living in Ecuador. Oh wow! Uh, I just became fa- fascinated with them. Just so unique, lived in such harsh conditions, very high altitude, cold and rugged. But they're always together with other llamas. They're never by themselves. They don't even like to be separated mm. by like ten or twenty feet from another llama. And so I just thought it was such a great, um, such a great little mascot for our brand that was about the outdoors and, uh, but also about community and being together and lifting others around us. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now tell me about um, when you were able to expand into more products and become, you know, kind of develop a, a bigger supply chain, bigger product um, offering, and what were the biggest challenges involved in that? Yeah, so we um, we launched with those five backpacks to start, and then about six months later, we launched our first line of apparel. We launched five different jackets, and um, ah, you know, it went okay. We had, you know, some of the product was better than others. You know, we had a ski jacket, for example, where the sleeves were like probably a half inch or an inch too short, and it was just like if you had long arms, <sighs> like, this doesn't really work. And uh, you know, and we also have cold wrists forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and uh, you know the. The jacket, other than that, was great. It was just, you know, the fit was a little bit off. And then we also realized, hey, like we launched that maybe in December and like by January or February, like ski season's over in terms of like you're not buying a new jacket that time. So it was like, okay, like I don't want to be in the snow sports industry. Like this is very hard. You have to sell over like a couple months. And then if you don't sell it, like you have it for the rest of the season. So, you know, there's some definitely some challenging lessons that we learned in those early days. Um, but because we were starting small and, um, we're, you know, trying to not take too big a risk, you know, some of the lessons that we learned were painful, but they, you know, they didn't implode the business. And so unfortunately we had very patient investors that believed in what we were doing and believed in our team. And, um, you know, over time we were able to slowly build a better and better product and better and better business. That's great. Was there, was there a turning point or an inflection point in which you realized like, okay, this is really working. Like this is going to be a growing and sustainable business. You know, um, honestly, it was day one when we had that first Questival. And um, 
I, I remember I went to, we had, the way we did that first one is we had three checkpoints where people checked in with their teams and they were up, um, they span kind of, uh, in Salt Lake City, there's what we call the Wasatch Front, this long valley. And we had three different college campuses that we kind of centered our work on. And um, we had uh, one at BYU, which is down the further south of the three schools. I went there for this check-in and that's where I'd gone to undergrad. And so, you know, I went there and I showed up and there was a line that was like a block and a half long of people waiting to check in to get their backpacks and to, to sign in to get started. And then when we had this whole group come to that, together at the end of those 24 hours, and we had thousands of people gather around wearing our product, shouting, you know, shouting out Cotopaxi and do good and some of these, you know, these things. It was like, that's when I realized we had something that was going to work. There were literally people that were wearing Cotopaxi shirts and hats. We didn't even sell shirts or hats. They had made, they like made their own homemade Cotopaxi gear. And so uh, I knew that the brand was resonating and connecting with people. And so from day one, I believed in what we were doing. And it doesn't mean like we had some really hard moments. We like almost ran out of money several times. Like I had to borrow money to make payroll once in the early days of the business from, from a friend. Like there were some scary moments where it was like, wow, like we are we are in danger uh, of failing. But, but I always believed in the business. I believed in the, that its mission needed to exist. Hmm. So tell me when when those hard moments happen, like when you're close to running out of money or when you're having to borrow from a friend, like how do you as an entrepreneur tell yourself like, I can see our balance sheet. I know this is going to recover or maybe I don't. And how do you go on? How do you just say like, I, I'm going to continue to believe in this idea until something worse than what's actually is happening happens? You know, <laughs> how do you how do you do that? I'll say, first of all, like it's uh, I've had a pit in my stomach. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur for 19 years. I've had a pit in my stomach for probably 18 and a half years. So it's like pretty much every day, <laughs> a lot of anxiety, no matter how well things are going. There's just anxiety and uh, a lot of high expectations and uh, uncertainty. And it's uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I think you have to be a little bit you have to become comfortable with that discomfort. Um I think one of the things that has served me very well has been I'm an optimist. I uh, I always am looking at the positive, maybe to a fault sometimes, but like I believe and I, um, I rally people around that belief and I see the good and the positive no matter what's happening. And I think that's really important because otherwise you could like easily fall into a depression, uh, you know, as things when things don't go quite right and they won't a lot of the time. And so I think that optimism is really helpful. Um, I think it's just putting one foot ahead of the other. And also it's being like being able to listen to feedback. You know, you are going to make mistakes. You're going to do things wrong and you have to own those things as quickly as possible and fix them. You can't try to defend past behaviors uh, that, you know, sometimes we try to think, explain why we made a certain decision and why it was right in the end. But even if it wasn't, but, uh, but yeah, those are, those are some of the lessons learned along the way. Mm. You just mentioned rallying people around your beliefs. You obviously started the company with a really strong mission um, and a multifaceted one. How do you then spread that and rally people, whether it's internally your, your own team, people that you're looking to hire or are already working with, and also customers? Like, How do you communicate those things that you believe and and get other people to, to take them in? So one of the things that I did differently with Cotopaxi than I had with my previous businesses was I wanted to build a very intentional culture. And... I realized that with my previous businesses, I had not done that well. Um, if you would have said to those businesses, uh, to the, the team, like, what are your core values? They could not have told you. With Cotopaxi, we knew what our core values were before we sold a single product. 
And we built rituals and traditions around those values from day one to reinforce that, to build it around, the, you know, our culture was built around those, those, that, that mission. And we deeply ingrained our purpose to everything that we did. Um, so if you, when you ordered a backpack from us, you got a handwritten thank you card written by a refugee. And these refugees, it was their very first job. They, when they were resettled to the United States, they were learning English and they write the thank you cards in their native language. And they would join this job club that we created where we'd help them um, create their first resume and help them practice doing job interviews and they could get their first job with us. And, um, you know, our supply chain, we, we worked very intentionally with our supply chain to make sure that we were impacting lives in a positive way where we worked and made our product. And, um, you know, we, we deeply were ingraining our mission into everything that we did. And so I think that was a really important part of, of building this brand the way we did. And in doing that, you know, I wasn't the only keeper of the flame. We had every one of our team members, every customer became a keeper of the flame. They understood why we existed and they wanted to tell other people about it. And I think that was a very important part of that, of building that mission and, and purpose into the brand and rallying other people around us. When we come back, I'll talk with Davis about how his company is giving back and why he's stepping back from his role later this year. But first, a quick break. You just mentioned what I was going to ask next, which is uh, about building a sustainable supply chain. This is something that is on every company's mind that I've spoken to recently. Um, if they don't already have a grasp on the environmental and social impact of their supply chain, they are trying to, and then trying to then take the steps to green it. But you started from from the beginning with this on your mind. How challenging did you find it to to build in the the best sort of social and environmental practices you could from day one? Yeah, you know, it's not easy because it's expensive. Um, yeah. You are paying more to do it right. And that puts a lot of pressure on margins. And, you know, in a business like ours, where we were also giving away money and doing things that maybe didn't make a lot of sense in the short term financially, because you know, in terms of our impact and mission, it was something I believed in. And I believed we needed to do as close to perfectly as possible from the beginning. Um, in the first year of the business, we hired a chief impact officer uh, before we even had a marketer. And my board was, they challenged me pretty hard on this one. Uh, you know, they were like, why are you hiring someone to give away money better when uh, you really should just hire someone to market the business more? And what I had to explain to them was like, this is at the very core of who we are. If we don't do impact better than anyone else has ever done, we have nothing to stand on. There's no business here. And so they supported me in the decision. And, you know, that early hire, she helped us do a lot of these things right. And you know, and we didn't go to factories and say, hey, this is what we do. This is the cookie cutter answer. We would go to them and we would listen and ask questions. And, you know, every one of them was different. You know, there's one of the factories where we built a community garden and um, they have an acre sized community garden right there at the factory where um, employees can take home vegetables and fruits back to their families at night. And um, we have others where uh, we pay 2% on top of the invoice price into a pool of capital that the team, the employees there, they have a committee where they get to vote where to allocate the money. And they have computers where they teach computer skills to their children. After they get done with school, they come to work to their work and learn computer skills. They have an English teacher that teaches the kids English. Like they're choosing how to use that money in the way that makes the most sense for them. And so, you know, we've worked really closely with our partners to make sure that we're serving the needs of, of the people that work there. And it's been beautiful, honestly. It's like these are yeah. yeah, these are just such amazing, talented, committed people, artisans and, and craftsmen, talented people. And 
And it's been so fun to have them be part of our mission and our purpose. And they feel a deep commitment to the product with the, that they're making too, because they love, you know, they love the brand and, and this partnership we have with them. Yeah, that's it's interesting. It sounds like you were pretty flexible in sort of how you were kind of giving back or forming a sustainable bond with the factories and communities there. Um, what were you able to accomplish in terms of what you sort of set out to do and what weren't you? Like what was, were there things that you like had to give in on in terms of what you had envisioned in terms of building a sustainable supply chain? Well, I'll tell you, there's one one story that I really loved, but it ended up not it kind of failed. It didn't really work. And I'm, I'm so disappointed about it. And I'm still hoping that we can figure it out at some point. But, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in Latin America and South America and served a, a mission, you know, mission there for two years in Bolivia. Uh, there was a little a community, a string of little communities in Bolivia, um, very, very remote. Uh, it takes several days to get to these, these little communities. Um, you know, no, no paved roads. Um, you know, a lot of them have no electricity. Um, but they're beautiful communities. And a lot of the people live off the land and they, they have llamas. Every family will have, you know, 20 or 30 llamas. And we, we created this supply chain where we were buying um, llama wool from, um, we created a co-op um, with some local farmers there and they would gather all these families and we, we would buy their llama wool. And we paid well above market prices for this llama wool. It was game changing for them. They could, you know, their children could actually go to school and, and things like that. It was really impactful. And we were making sweaters and socks and even we had jackets where the insulation inside the jacket, instead of being down, it was llama wool. Oh, and, cool. Uh, yeah, it was really, really cool. But we started having concerns about the sustainability of the supply chain because we didn't have any way to verify like how the, where the llama wool was coming from, like were the animals being treated ethically. We have no idea. Like there was no standard that we could follow. Like if you buy merino wool, there's a standard that like in New Zealand where like, you know, all the sheep have been treated properly and, you know, they're not being necessarily slaughtered to go get the wool. And like, we just didn't know the answers to those questions with our, with our supply chain. And we made the really tough decision to put a pause on that program as much as I loved it. And, and I thought we were having a really, a really great impact. But there was risk in the supply chain. There, were, there was unknowns that we just didn't have the abilities to answer. And so that's one that I'm hoping we can go back to at some point. Yeah, it just shows how tricky every little decision can be, right? Um, like how complex the circumstances are. And 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 it's tough when when your vision of sustainability, uh, you know, is, I, I think, flexible and, and necessarily so at times. That's interesting. What advice would you have for founders who are just starting out and want to make sure that their mission is ingrained in everything they do in their business. How do you how do you make it firm enough at the outset, but yet flexible enough to actually work in the real world? So I really love this concept of starting with a why, understanding your purpose and mission before anything else. You know, with Codapaxi, I knew that I wanted to fight poverty before I knew what product we would sell. And then I wanted, I built a business around this problem I wanted to solve. And so I think understanding your why and then you never put it to the side. It's at the forefront of everything you do. You build it into the into the rituals and traditions. You build it into your culture, and you talk about it every day. I never like anytime I'm talking to our team, I talk about our mission. And uh, you might think as a founder, like ah, it's good. they're going to get tired of hearing about this. It gets old for them because like you might even be tired of talking about it yourself, saying the same things over and over. But it doesn't get old. Like they need to hear it, and it's important for people to continue to hear and understand why it's so central to why you're doing it. So I think that's the most important thing. 
but you also you do have to be willing to adapt and to listen. And you know, as, as an entrepreneur, there's some sometimes things don't go well. You know, most businesses do fail, and so being flexible and adaptable and understanding what works and what resonates with people, um, I think, is is really critical. Tell me, what is the state of the business right now? Um, you have had a big year of bringing in some some new executives and um, and had a lot of growth recently. Um, and I hear there are some changes coming as well. But bring me up to speed on how big is is Cotopaxi now? So the business, you know, we're eight and a half years old, and um, it's been amazing. You know, we've seen some really fantastic growth over the years. We just crossed the nine figure marks over. We, you know, we did over hundred million in revenue last year. Um, the business has been profitable for the last three years. So the first five years, we gave away more money than we ever made. Wow. But the last three years, like the business is working and it's allowed us to be even more generous. We've, uh, multiple years, we've given two or three times our commitment of impact. You know, we've committed to at least 1% of our revenues, which, you know, if you're a business like Amazon, that's a hundred percent of your profits. It's a 1%. Well, it sounds like a small number for a business. It can be a huge amount of your profit for us. It's oftentimes been more than 100% of profit, or even in our best years, it's been a significant amount of our profit. But the business is uh, a little over 300 employees. We've added some really great talent. The CEO of Eddie Bauer joined our team last year as our president. Um, we hired uh, the chief people officer from Chobani. She'd been there for 10 years, a brilliant woman, Grace Zunsik. Um, We just hired the chief brand officer from General Mills. Uh, he joined our team. And... Um, just feels like uh, the business is in a place where we can really, the dream that I had from the very beginning to build this, this brand that could meaningfully fight poverty and that could inspire many other, you know, thousands of other businesses and millions of other consumers to, to join us in this mission of fighting poverty and, and doing business better, showing that capitalism can be done better than we've done it in the past. It feels like that's a reality. And I have a vision that we can get to a, you know, a billion dollars in revenue and that we can use this business to really make a mark on people's lives Last year, we helped over 1.2 million people living in poverty. Um, we've helped over three and a half million people since our inception living in poverty. And so that's something that motivates me tremendously. There are some big changes ahead as you... Yeah, I was just going to ask, and what are you doing this year? Yeah, so I just announced um, two days ago that I'm actually going to be moving into a chairman role on July 1st of this year, 2023. And um, our president, Damian Wong, uh, the one that joined us from Eddie Bauer, is going to become CEO. And I'm going to take a three-year leave of absence of sorts, and I'm going to be a missionary in South America. My church called my wife and I a few months ago and asked if we'd be willing to set our lives aside for three years um, to go be missionaries. And, um, you know, it makes no sense financially or, <laughs> you know, or professionally. But it's so in line with our values of putting aside maybe something that we love and want to go do something to help others. And so we're we're very excited and honestly, uh, very nervous and anxious as well, uh, if I'm being honest. But it's a big change. And uh, but I'm going to continue to to be on the on the board. Uh, I'm going to continue to work with our with the Cotopaxi Foundation and the good work we're doing there with fighting poverty. And uh, when I come back in three years, I'll dive back in and and continue to play this this role as steward of our brand and our purpose and our mission. So um, it's an exciting and, and nerve-wracking time for us. Yeah, it's a whole new new level of how to balance, you know, work and life, right? Um, <laughs> you've got a yeah. lot to look forward to and to plan. Well, that's great, Davis. Thank you so much for being here with me today and, and congratulations. Thank you, Christine. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 
After speaking with Davis, what stuck with me is that he's a person whose personal goals and pledges he makes to himself have truly made a difference in his life. He took a moment of crisis and a break with his longtime co-founder and friend to build purpose into his next business. The idea came to him as an idea for a company that could also be a force for good. A purpose-driven business that could fight poverty and its humanitarian mission would be built into every aspect of the company from day one. Even when investors questioned why he'd set out to give away money before he was making any money, Davis stuck to it. And now, in the next leg of his personal journey, he's sticking to what he believes in most. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Our producer, who hasn't been spit on by a llama, but who has spit on a llama, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.